how to do this. <laughs> What's new with you guys? <laughs> <laughs> How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Well, we're back. We're back, baby. For now. <laughs> yeah, sorry about the long uh, break there. Nobody could get healthy. I think it was uh, you were the last podcast we did. I opened up with uh, by asking you, what's going on with you? You sick or something? Oh, yeah. And then. Oh, wow. Right. Was that the last time. Yeah. And then we didn't we didn't see you for a while. I was like, I'm not sure. And then the next day I was like, <laughs> yes, I'm <am> very sick. <laughs> and something. You are sick and something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, just, it, yeah, you got sick. And then you started to get healthy-ish. Yeah. And then Mark over here uh, went old school and got himself some COVID. Yeah, the original. The original. Yeah. Did you have? You know what kind you had? <clears throat> the virus. The okay, the viral yeah. one. Yeah, that's a rough one. Nineteen. Yeah, yeah COVID nineteen. <laughs> COVID nineteen. The one that still tests positive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, you got sick, so we scrapped the podcast um, that week too, and then last week I picked up a stomach bug. Yeah. Uh, Henry had one, and uh, thought. Yeah, we thought we were gonna escape it. And Rachel so far has escaped it still. So we're hoping that that continues. But these things can live on surfaces, they say, for long periods of time, two to three weeks. Mm. And so mm. Henry was like 13 days into it, and I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. And then I was not. In fact, I preached. The last time I preached was with that bug. Yeah. <laughs> I was praying and asking the Lord. I'm like, I need three 35-minute segments <laughs> where I can control... <laughs> Where you will control my body. <laughs> it's like I rebuke you, dysentery uh, and nausea and stomach cramping. So how was that after church nap? There was no nap. It was just it was releasing the kraken, so oh, to speak. Man. It was yeah, it was bad. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do because, like, we had th I had asked Jerry to cut a song that Sunday, and uh, we were talking about um, deacons, deaconesses, and because I had you know 38 minutes 40 minutes of um, content that i couldn't trim down anymore and so we had less songs so it was 9 15 and i'm in the back office restroom listening <laughs> to that song wind down and i'm like i'm not gonna make it <laughs> like how am i gonna do this and i'm like i hope someone and i think you had announcements or communion mm -hmm. that a week and i was like Come on, Holy Spirit, give Mark more to say. <laughs> and so I was literally sprinting up the back ramp. <laughs> like, just be cool. Oh. So, yeah, needless to say, it's been three weeks. Where we haven't uh, done any podcasting, but we are. I am glad to be back. It's the season of, <laughs> I like when I said I am glad to be back. You guys were just dead silent. <laughs> Staring at the table. It's a lot to process. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite an opener. Really? Yeah, you made us feel really bad for you. Oh no, no, it's fine. I'm fine. I was we're, just trying to get the point across that I was more sick than you guys. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. We're really we're glad to be back. What I loved is that in the podcast in close quarters, right? With you. Yeah. No, 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 we're fine. Last for weeks. I mean, <laughs> right. On yeah. tables, services, yeah. microphones. Yeah, and, it's airborne. I, mean, I kind of feel better, but really, oh no, I feel great. And I've I've bathed myself in sanitizer. <laughs> but here's the thing: if I don't give it to you, your kids will. Like they're you're getting it from somewhere. Mm. You know, just do you want their version or mine? <laughs> Mine's a known quantity. Yeah. 
I'm just saying it's terrible. Um, <laughs> you don't want it. Uh, what am I supposed to type into uh, this week on the episode? <laughs> Neil, Mark, and Chad chit chat about illness, diarrhea. <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah, we can all pretend right we're adults here. Hiatus. <laughs> well, I think it was the uh, the podcast where I asked you, you know, you know, how are you doing? You yeah. got something going on, and then. Uh, and I said, "Did you have something to mark?" And he, and he said, "Health." And yeah. Then, yeah. Wow. Right. And the four days I later, God was like, "You're getting COVID." <laughs> You're getting <laughs> right. struck. Pride goeth before the vid. <laughs> That's oh, how it works. Um, but you guys did okay with it. This second. This is your third time with it, right? Uh, second documented. Okay. The third. I think I had it a third time though. You yeah. think you had it, Chad? Didn't you? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't didn't test positive or anything, but. Same. Did, we were sick for like a month. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the pink eye, you had the. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And my son, yeah, my son definitely got pink eye. Um, yeah, it's like that weird thing where it comes in waves, and you're you're like, okay, yeah. I think I'm getting over this cold, yep. and then you get struck with just completely new symptoms within 48 hours. That was Henry and, and Rachel. Yeah. They both got wound up getting pink eye and mm-hmm. all that stuff, and she tested several times. We don't test Henry because it just stresses him out so bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And she came back negative too, but it, her taste was gone for a while. You lost taste, right, Mark? That's the only reason I tested. Was, yeah. It, I mean, I was, it was just a normal sickness, and then I lost taste. So I thought I should probably test. You, have you back? back? Hmm? Mm, jinx. Yeah. Do you have a back? <laughs> you have a back? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's like 90%. Okay. Can you eat tortilla chips yet? Uh, just within the last like six months. Oh, thank, thank the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> tortilla chips tasted rotten to yeah, me yeah. for over... I mean, like a year and a half, two years, yeah. and the smell of them was just vile. Yeah, um, that was how it was with coffee. Coffee oh, smelled like ammonia. Really? That's how I could tell I came <clears> I <throat> the coffee. Because I was going to come to work that day, actually. Yeah. I was dressed and showered, ready to come to work, and the coffee smelled like ammonia. Mm. Well, that's the that's first sign, I think. Well, we're back. What episode is this? Anybody know? Season 12. No. Season 12. Yeah. <laughs> The Lord certainly did want to end that season. He did. <laughs> I think we should stop talking about new seasons because ever since then, he seems to be a, struck. He's striking us down with the old plagues of Israel. It feels like Mark came in today. There were frogs all over the room. Like, this is what we're doing. Is it 68? I don't know. 69? I could go to the uh, the YouTube and see. This is wildly unprofessional, but we are also not. Uh, <laughs> Riveting podcast. Hang on, guys. I want you to listen to me scroll. Because everybody my listening phone. already knows what number Damn. it is because they saw it posted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, 68. This is 68. All right. I knew it. There we go. Episode 68. So, welcome to the atrium. <laughs> Our favorite episode, episode 68. This is a Hope Christian Church <laughs> podcast. My name is Neil. I'm the lead pastor here at Hope Christian Church. And this very monochromatic, if I could say, fella to my right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my name's Chad. I'm the student pastor. Yeah. I'm Mark. I'm the adult pastor. And All right. Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> We're all here. And that'll be it for today. <laughs> so let me let me bring us up to speed. We've been in this series called Timothy, and we have been taking a look at the kind of blueprint or the nutrition label is how we've kind of um, 
given this picture of this uh, Timothy being the nutrition label for the church. It gives us ingredients of what a healthy church should look like. And we talked about sound doctrine. Uh, Mark talked about the key ingredient of prayer and men and women pursuing unity and holiness. And then in chapter three, we split that into two parts and we talked about the uh, key ingredient of biblically qualified elders, uh, elder being defined as a man who is able to teach and manage, who is pursuing right living to the best of his ability through the power of the Holy Spirit, according to God's word. And then the following week, we talked about deacons and deaconesses, biblically qualified deacons and deaconesses. And then we hit pause and Denver Daniel from Open Door, the president of Open Door, was with us this past Sunday, and he shared a sermon uh, which was different from him, from what he was communicating, from what he normally preaches, uh, talking about well maintenance and going to wellowner.org and looking at um, all the things you need to do to protect the investment of the well and then equating that to the treasure that God has given us uh, through our relationship with Jesus Christ and how do we do these things. And and then this coming week, we've got Mary and Wallace Kamau from Missions of Hope coming in. Uh, Bob's going to be um, speaking with them, interviewing them um, on Sunday, and we're going to watch some videos of some things that uh, give us some updates, and then I'll um, be kind of closing the service out uh, with that as well. So we're looking forward to them being in town. Uh, we've, I have said for the last couple of weeks, this is a child sponsorship Sunday. We're not, you know, I want people to know that, yeah, we're trying to, to, you know, get kids sponsored through missions of hope. Uh, hope at one point was, and Bob just gave me these numbers and these, these aren't exact numbers, but at one point hope had uh, over 160 kids, uh, that were sponsored through this, that number has diminished and, and gone down to 115. Mm. And part of what I talked about uh, on the last couple of Sundays is that one of the reasons that that goes down is when the economy tightens up a little bit, right? Inflation is, and we've all discussed this, right? To feed our children, to pay our electric bill, everything's gone up. And so one of the things that people cut are charitable donations. And so uh, some of those kids have graduated or moved on or out from the program and haven't, um, you know, uh, yeah. there's no need to sponsor, but they haven't re-sponsored additional kids. And and if that's been your situation, certainly not sharing this to make anyone feel bad or to pressure anybody, but it just shows that there's a need out there. And so we wanted to partner uh, with them on a Sunday morning when they were in town. That's quite the commute. And so they were in town for some other things and we were able to get them over uh, to our place. And so we're looking forward to, to meeting with them. Bob's going to be talking with them. Bob has had known Marion Wallace for 17 years now. And so uh, he's been over to um, Mathari North, our school, I think five times now. So it just makes a lot of sense for him to um, be interviewing them. He's got that relationship with them. And uh, not that I don't know Mary or Wallace, uh, but I haven't had nearly interaction that he has with them over the years. And so I'll just come up and close the service out. So that's what we will be doing this Sunday. And then the following Sunday, we're going to be back in Timothy. And then we'll be in Timothy until Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is going to be... Uh, Sunday morning services, we're adding a fourth service on Sunday morning. We're not going to do Christmas evening services since it's a Sunday. We're going to do our normal programming, but add one. And then you'll be closing out, Timothy, uh, the very last Sunday, which is New Year's Eve, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so 
you'll hear Pastor Mark right before the ball drops. Or not right before, but a little bit before the ball drops. Midnight mass. So you can make your resolution. Yeah, first day of the year and last day of the year. That's right. There you go. Preaching on both. There you go. So when's the last time you've done that? I'd never. I mean that. Oh, really? oppor- I mean, I mean, every seven years, New Year's Day, New Year's Eve are both on a Sunday. I really wanted to book this book in oh. this year with Mark. Nice. Start yeah. with Mark, end with Mark, and just a little bit of Mark in, yeah. in the middle. Bookmark. There you go. Bookmark. <laughs> the way you spend Christmas or New Year's Eve is the way you spend you'll spend your year. Is that what they say? That's what they say. Oh boy. Never so. heard that in my life. Well. Why do they say that? You're young. Do kids still celebrate New Year's Eve? I don't know. Do 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 grown up to you? I mean, I, I don't know if I ever really did. Yeah. Yeah. We used to do something uh fun. We growing up we had we, we had a lock in at church. Um we oh. always had lock ins on New Year's Eve. Yeah. That's not celebrating. Yeah, but no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, we bring our yeah, Super Nintendos and Oh did you? Okay. Hook them up at the church and eat meatballs for four hours. That no, hang on, I take that back then. That sounds, sounds like quite, like a, quite great a celebration. It was a great time, yeah. Like yeah. bring crock pots of those country noodles. Dude, I put the GameCube out in the N64, and middle school students right now are just loving it. Where did you get those reason. systems? I was curious about they that were this here. week. Somebody donated them those, years ago. Those are so valuable now. Like, they are. Every year they get more and more valuable. Oh, what year. kind of money are we talking here? You could get hundreds know. of dollars for both systems. Really? Yeah. And where are they? <laughs> right. Chad won't <laughs> Not locked up. They need, they need a lockbox. <laughs> put those in my office. <laughs> I want them myself. <laughs> I, I uh, my roommate had a GameCube in college. I okay. to play. I think it dropped my GPA about a whole a whole point one year. <laughs> yeah. Well, the graphics are just so bad. You, <laughs> it's hilariously. Do bad. you game, Chad? Oh man, not really. No, no. High school, I did a lot more, but okay. I mean, like Madden, more sports games. Halo. Yeah. Okay. Was a first shooter, shooter game I played, but no, I didn't. I didn't get too crazy into my adulthood. Yeah. Did you? At all, Mark? Mm. No, I did. I, I played in college, but um, now if I play, it's uh, I'll just get like if I get hooked on a game. Yeah. with Oscar. What does he have? One of those switches or something? Yeah, he's got a switch. That's what everybody. Huge. Yeah, we, yeah, we play Zelda. The new Zelda games really. Oh, good. okay. Yeah. yeah. These new Star Wars games are kind of reeling me back in. Are they? Yeah. Do you have a system at your house? I don't, but that's what I thought. I'm like, all right, maybe, maybe soon I'll get a system yeah. just, just for these new Star Wars games. We have an Xbox, so but we don't game on it. We use it for that's like what we watch Netflix, Netflix on or whatever. Yeah. yeah just, okay. Mm. We don't have a a gaming system. Henry's not interested. He says he doesn't like video games. Yeah. I was curious if Henry would be interested in chess. Have you has he ever tried that? Mm. No. No. Oscar's getting into it. He's on the club now, and is he, he okay? First tournament last weekend. How do you do? He, let's Dominated. see, he played, everyone played four games. He won one, lost two, and one was a, a, a draw. Okay, that's so, good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. If he ever wants to win at chess, I will play him. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't, me yet. I don't know how to play chess. Me neither. At all. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, is it? And I think it is. <laughs> a man of my age should know. To, I don't know. I feel like not, I feel, I don't know. No? I feel like yeah. not that many people actually know how to play chess. And Rachel knows how to play chess. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I just feel like, it's like, you know, kids don't do chess anymore, do they? They don't do New Year's Eve. They don't do chess. I'm not even very good at checkers, so. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I thrive in the checker environment. Yeah. No, man. Checkers is the worst. I was why I'm you glad like like my kids have moved on to chess because checkers is so boring. 
Huh. <laughs> exactly. I can't well, <laughs> Probably because you're playing seven-year-olds. Well, yeah. Yeah, that might be. <laughs> yeah. When are you supposed to like stop playing? I feel like it would playing? be much more interesting if we played. <laughs> I got to tell you, we're going to find out. You're, if you make a note, sell the GameCube <laughs> and buy us a bunch of checkers. We have a big checker set, right? <laughs> we oh, do we? This wall. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's right. The yeah. big one, yeah. Yeah, there's the giant Connect 4 there. We've got well. a few chess sets that are never touched. Really? In the youth ministry department. I want you to poll the kids. Like, bring it up. See if see how many of them know how to play. Students? I will. Yeah, chess? Students. I'll take all the notes. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad we've got that settled. <laughs> well, I don't know. I thought Henry might enjoy chess. He might. He and Oscar could play. Right now, he just likes speedometers. Yeah. That's it. There's, like, not, yeah, there's no speedometers in chess. No. He's even taking... There are a, clocks. Oscar started to play with the clock. He does. He was recently... The timer thing. Yeah. He screen mirrors our TV from his iPad. Yeah. And he was like, check this out. And I looked up and it was a bunch of... He had typed in... Uh, or there's a bookmark on his... Uh, Safari that was just clock gifts. Yeah. And it was just a bunch of clocks images. And he was like, look at that. <laughs> and I was like, eating it up. What well, am show I him Oscar's chess clock. That might, okay. get him, that might pique well, his interest. Might, yeah, he might. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. He likes to run around. I asked him last night, because um, we a lot of times we'll say, what was your favorite part of the day? And so I asked him, I'm like, what, what do you, what's your favorite thing to do? And he said, uh, he likes to, to play. That's his favorite thing. Like, what do you think daddy's favorite thing to do is? Without hesitation, he was like, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what about mommy? He's like, watch TV. <laughs> so I thought r r this was Rachel and I need maybe parent a little bit better. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I need to wake up and she needs to shut the TV off. <laughs> and maybe don't give our kid the iPad so he stares at clocks. <laughs> That's it. We'll figure it out. Well... Let's get to our uh, questions today. We've got a, a few questions, nothing really related to the series. We've got a little bit of a backlog of questions um, because we haven't podcast in the last three weeks and really only podcast a couple times in the last, I think, six. So we'll start off with you, Mr. Mark. What do you got? All right. First question. Could you help me understand the similarities and differences between Calvary Chapel denomination and Calvinism. I know hope is non-denomination, but does it have roots in either one of these? All right, so the similarities and differences between Calvary Chapel denomination and Calvinism. Um, it's a little bit like comparing an apple and an orange. They're not directly the same thing. Uh, the Calvary Chapel, that you might see Calvary Chapel churches, community churches around the country, around the world even, um, that's a denomination that started in California, Southern California, and it's known for being tightly associated with the Jesus movement and the Holy Spirit movement in the 60s and the the hippie movement. Um, it was a, a church that was founded in, like I said, the 60s, and then like when the Summer of Love hit in 67, um, the the preacher there, the guy who founded it was named Chuck Smith, and basically he did a lot of outreach to the to the hippie culture, and uh, a lot of hippies came into the church, and um, that's kind of what's known for. And it exploded, it grew, um, and basically now they're at a point where they're seventeen to eighteen hundred churches strong across the world. Um, 
Calvary Chapel is also known for uh, being kind of the beginning of, because of all these hippies coming in, um, a lot of their early services were like concerts and rock concerts. And so they're kind of the beginning of like rock music being brought into the church, modern worship. There a lot of people see them as kind of the, the beginning of that. Mm. Um, I thought I started that in the nineties. Well, <laughs> you were integral. Okay. Give yourself too much credit. <laughs> I don't know. I you thought carried I, the torch. I was basically yeah. the Kurt Cobain of the church. That's you're, what I thought. You're no Keith <laughs> Green. <laughs> That's true. So like, uh, like if you're familiar with, uh, um, uh, Marinantha music that mm-hmm. came out of Calvary Chapel. Um, and then that also led to things like Vineyard. There's associations with Vineyard Church, Vineyard Music. Um, so Calvary Chapel is just an American-founded denomination of Christianity, founded by Chuck Smith. You know, it's his denomination. It it grew. Now today, Chuck Smith has passed. It's a denomination of about 1,800 churches, but actually it's non-denominational too. And to clarify that, um, it is actually technically an association of churches. So um, a denomination implies a church that a church structure that has a ruling governing authority hierarchy above the local church. So the local churches are connected, they're tied to the same denomination, but then above the church leadership, so above the elders of the church or however the church is led locally, there's a governing authority above it. And so you think of like the Presbyterian church has a governing hierarchy above the local churches. So that governing hierarchy has authority to tell the churches what to do or their, the church's answer to this board. So that's what a denomination is. So Calvary Chapel is a, a group of locally led churches. They're just associated because they have the same roots. They kind of believe, they do believe the same thing, and they just have this a fellowship association. So it's not technically a, a denomination. It's non-denominational in that sense. Hope, us, we are non-denominational in the sense that we don't have a, a hierarchy above us. Um, we don't have a, you know, a, a presbyter or a bishop or anything above us that would that we would see as our authority. We are locally led by elders. We are non-denominational. We also don't make any associations or fellowships with other churches or other like-minded churches. So there's different things like Acts 29 network, there's the ARC network, there's the Harbor network. There's these associations where churches can kind of affiliate with each other without, you know, taking authority from each other. So the, you know, there's not a whole, I don't know what the huge benefits are from being in a fellowship or an association like that, other than, you know, support for, you know, if you go through a hard time or you need a pastor or you need... I don't know, maybe even money. Sometimes it can, churches can help with that. But anyway, Hope Christian Church doesn't have any affiliations or any fellowships or anything like that. We're non-denominational and we have no associations. Uh, Calvary, so Calvary Chapel is just a denomination, um, a non-denominational fellowship. denomination. They're a fellowship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Hope used to have. Like Christian churches, there was in this, maybe within the last... I guess it was probably six years ago. Um, Christian churches all over had a, an association, and they would meet at this North American Christian Convention. And this this went on for decades and decades and decades. It was part of this known as the Restoration Movement. Yeah. And so Hope has its roots in an association that has since dissolved. Um, we're not 
that North American Christian convention doesn't exist anymore in, I think it was yeah. about five or six years ago, but Hope was loosely affiliated with these I things. think it's called the Spire Network now. Okay. They've kind of shifted things. Yeah. And, but what we've seen is these uh, associations, these denominations are, are kind of a dying, a dying thing um, in many ways. Like the, some of that younger generation saw the, maybe even our generation saw some of the um, disadvantages and in many ways un, unscriptural approaches that a lot of these denominations took. For example, if you've got a church like Hope Christian Church that is of a particular denomination and then you've got somebody in Wisconsin that's calling the shots that doesn't really know anything about the church, it doesn't how do you how are you really ministering to that specific flock and that specific yeah. people? And so there's been a, a lack of interest um, in denominations or even denominational planting. Uh, there's been less of that. Um, from some of the studies that I've read over the last couple of years. but So Hope has its roots in what was that known as that restoration movement. Um, but that yeah. is, but it's, Hope's an old church. I mean, it's... Well, and the restoration movement goes way, way back, back right. 100 years prior to Calvary Chapel. I mean, it's, it's the 1850s, right. 1840s. Um, and, and there's similarities there uh, because the, the restoration movement also viewed church leadership as... Uh, it should be done locally by the elders of the church individually. Um, and so, again, the church, the restoration movement produced the churches of Christ mm-hmm. and the Christian churches right. and and the disciples of Christ. And we hope came out of that. Um, so there's a similarity there to where we are individual autonomous or an autonomous church. Um, but even there, the di- there's a difference uh, because... Um, Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, one of the things he's known for is the Moses-led model um, that he viewed churches should be led by the senior pastor. And then just as Moses led the Israelites, he was like their senior pastor, but then he also had you know, his 70 elders. So the Moses model is there's a senior pastor and then there's elders, but the senior pastor is not answerable to the elders. Right. Basically, the senior pastor answers to God, the other elders work with him and support him, um, but he's basically responsible for the church. And so this Moses-led model uh, is kind of what, that's was kind of a distinction of Calvary Chapel. He kind of pioneered this model of church leadership. Um, and there's been, you know, there's been critiques of it, and it makes, you know, can potentially give one man too much power because it makes them answerable to nobody, um, you know, no person. But anyway, uh, the Church of Christ, though, the Restoration Movement taught elder-led churches that right. were—the uh, church was led by, a, you know, a board of elders. Um, so we are not—we're uh, not affiliated with the Calvary Chapel at all. I've actually had no. people ask that in the past, um, and I'm not really? sure— I'm not—yeah, I'm not no. sure where it comes from. Something about us—yeah, um, somebody came in off the street one day during the during office hours, and— Stopped in because she thought we were associated with Calvary Chapel, um, but we're not at all. Um, I wonder if it's because when I meet new families, I'll often tell them, "My name is Neil. I'm answerable to no one, no human." That is, should I maybe stop doing? <laughs> Could that? be, <laughs> Probably, maybe. Okay, I want to. I'll make a note. So Calvary Chapel is. Um, they are charismatic, but they're very cautious. Charismatic. They're they're much more conservative than most charismatic churches would be. Um, as far as their beliefs, um, they uh, 
Um, they would line up mostly, I think, with Hope Christian Church. Um, maybe a few things here and there um, would be different, but um, yeah, we did not come out of the Calvary Chapel movement. Now, one um, one controversy of Calvary Chapel was, uh, and one way that we would differ probably from Calvary Chapel is they're very particular in their eschatology, um, their premillennial pre-trib, and um, they interpret, you know, a lot of things going on in the news as um, predicted in Scripture, uh, relevant to what's predicted in Scripture. Um, and Chuck Smith um, viewed Israel, the founding of Israel in 48, as, as you know— It's the end the of end. the world. And, and uh, that saying where Jesus said, this generation won't pass away um, until everything is completed— he saw 48, 1948, the founding of Israel as the start of that. So mm-hmm. uh, a wrath, a generation of wrath in Scripture is 40 years, as um, we saw the Israelites spend 40 years in the desert, uh, the wilderness. So by 1988, he said and he wrote that things would get going. The, the tribulation would start. So 1988 was the year, seven years before that, any, any time before 1981, basically, minus seven the tribulation was going to start by 1981, um, and it did not. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people left Calvary Chapel, left the church. Um, but that's very relevant to what's going on in the news today and misinterpreting the times, misinterpreting events, right. world history events. Because, um, I mean, you've gone down on record in that, like, how many times can a prophet be wrong? How many times can a teacher be wrong? All the time. Right, we get it. we never get it completely right, um, but that's a that would be a big difference between Calvary Chapel and us um, is our eschatology and what they hold to and how hard of lines they draw as well. Now, um, the difference between Calvary Chapel and Calvinism. So, Calvinism is not a denomination. Calvinism is a school of thought. Calvinism is basically from the teaching and interpretation of the Bible from John Calvin. And this is a great day to be talking about this because today is Reformation Day. We're recording this on October 31st, and everyone knows it as Halloween. Mm. But today is also Reformation Day. Reformation Day uh, is the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg. And got him pillowcase and went from door to door and received candy. That's right. That's where we get it from. <laughs> from the Catholics. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> from the Catholics. <laughs> we can just move on. <laughs> no, I keep going. <laughs> um, where was I? Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Derailed it. Knock, knock. 95 theses, Reformation yeah. Day, Calvinism. Yeah. So yeah. October 31st, yeah. 1517, 500, plus years ago, uh, it's considered the start of the, Re- the Reformation. Now, at that time, at that year, that moment, John Calvin was nine years old. He was alive, but he was a kid. John Calvin would grow up and become a, a basically a, a theologian. He'd become um, one of the most significant figures in Protestantism. And um, uh, basically, he took he, what Martin Luther started with the Reformation, the 95 Theses. He started the Protestant Reformation. Any church based, essentially any church that's come after since then, 
is a Protestant church that's broken off of the Roman Catholic Church. That's what a Protestant church is. So we are a Protestant church. Um, any other Calvary Chapel would be Protestant churches, all that. Now, John Calvin came along shortly after Martin Luther and wrote, um, ended up writing a lot, taught a lot. He wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion um, in 1536. So less than 30 years, or less than 20 years after the 95 Theses were were pounded to the church door. And this book laid out his, his interpretation of Scripture, and it had very different views of what the Roman Catholic Church taught. I mean, that's that's the whole point of the Reformation is that Martin Luther disagreed with the Catholic Church's view on how it taught Scripture, and so he ultimately Luther even wasn't trying to he wasn't trying to start a Reformation. He was trying to trying to start a purification. He was yeah. trying to confront the Roman Catholic Church and say, "Look, you guys got to get back to Scripture. You've gone you've you've gone off the rails." And you're getting a lot of stuff wrong. And he was trying to confront them and rebuke them. And what happened was the whole Protestant Reformation and everything broke off. And the Roman Catholic Church continued down their, their path of apostasy. And so Calvin comes along and teaches and writes. And his work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, becomes one of the most, I'll say, influential Christian books ever written. And he wrote it when he was 26 which blows my mind that will blow my mind till the day I die. Yeah. Cause if you've read this thing, it is, it is like three textbooks in one. It is a brick and it is some of the most thorough and also clear teachings of the Bible. Like you'll ever read is, it is, it's unbelievable. Yeah, at 26, you're playing GameCube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm trying to be in a rock band. <laughs> And so Calvinism is not a denomination. Calvinism is the point of view uh, that, that kind of comes from John Calvin and his, his view of Scripture. So <clears throat> denominations uh, can hold Calvinism, hold Calvinistic views mm -hmm. um, or not. They can hold to what Calvin taught or they can hold other views. Uh, so Calvinism is uh, marked by largely this... Uh, teaching that God is sovereign, and um, he's sovereign in salvation. And that's that's the big push of Calvinism when you think of Calvinism. Um, it's it's uh, simplified by the TULIP, the TULIP uh, acronym. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a five-point, basically, five-point acronym to kind of summarize the beliefs of Calvinism. Uh, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And those are five doctrines that kind of were key to Calvin, but also key to Martin Luther as well. Like, this is what uh, the the these reformers were pushing against from the Catholic Church, the, the views of uh, Scripture, of Christ, of salvation, of the Church, of the saints. Like, this is kind of the points that were, they were pushing against. Um, and so um, a church— churches can be Calvinistic churches can be the opposite of that. Um, it, it's not, uh, it's not like a specific denomination holds to that so specific denominations do hold to that. Yeah. So. Uh, Presbyterianism is pr pretty much Calvinistic. Um, Anglicanism. Um, and then a lot of non-denominational churches are Calvinistic. Uh, there's a lot of reformed, they're called reformed Baptists. Uh, churches that uh, hold to Calvinistic beliefs. 
Uh, and then there's people who completely reject Calvinism and say it's not biblical, and they essentially hold to the opposite. <laughs> so those five points I mentioned, and I know I breeze through them, but that's a whole other episode to talk about, sure. Tulip. Um, they will literally hold the opposite view of all of those uh, and define them differently. Um, and um, and then there's also a blend, a mix. The, the people will say they're three-point Calvinists, meaning they, they agree with three of the f- five points or a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist. And, uh, Calvary Chapel would, uh, from what I've read, from what their statement of belief says, they seem to be a three-point Calvinist. Um, and to me, that doesn't make sense because if you study the points, it's kind of an either all or nothing for me. Right. They all point maybe, to the same thing. Maybe a four-point. I could see <clears throat> maybe a four-point, but like if you follow them logically, it's hard to... But one would you could you think you could leave out? Um, well, it, it, again, it's not that you could leave it out. It's, um, I think... It just depends on how you define it. Right. So, uh, and that that gets into the the I think the importance. Well, we can tell later, but um, like limited atonement, uh, it gets to, into how you would define it. Yeah. Um, he only died for the elect. Yes. So limited yeah. atonement is is the view that the atonement is us being made at one with God. So when Christ died, he either died for everybody in the world. Or he died only for the people that would be saved. Yeah. And um, limited atonement is the idea that when Christ died on the cross, he died specifically for the people that would be saved. He didn't die for the sins of everybody in the whole world, just for the people that would be saved. And and again, we don't have to get into that because that's limited atonement is its own book. Yeah. Um, but then also irresistible grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just if you depending on how you define it. Yeah. Um, because like someone who doesn't believe in irresistible grace would say God ultimately chooses and you don't have a choice to respond. You just, you, you, it's up to God. Um, but I believe you could, a Calvinist would also say that God chooses and yet we do still have to respond. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I've within my own personal thinking, I, I find it hard not to be, you either got to go with all five or you go with the opposite of all five. Like I, yeah. I but that's just me. Um, so Calvinism um, is, is a very controversial school of thought because it, it, people believe it's completely wrong. Um, obviously the Roman Catholic church thought it was completely wrong. They put many people to death over it, um, including Martin Luther. He was, he was um, slated to be executed over it because um, it was blasphemy to them um so i don't know where i'm at now in my thoughts but calvary chapel chapel is an american denomination that started in the 60s in california um 1800 churches today um calvinism though is a a school of thought that came out of the reformation um and it's um it's bigger than a denomination we'll say that yeah yeah no i thought that was thorough yeah Ooh, wow. Chad, do you have anything Take to add? Us to school, I like that. Yeah, I think um, again, just a you know, hope is non-denominational and has no affiliations or associations, and don't plan on it. Well, let me. I mean, at least I don't. 
while we're. I mean, I think I think it will actually get into the next question because it says, "Does it have roots in either one of these?" Um, mm-hmm. Calvary Chapel, um, as I said, they're probably three point Calvinists, so they 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 actually say they try to be like a middle ground between the two views, and um, they're you know they're not really. I guess, full Calvinist, uh, Hope Christian Church coming out of the Restoration Movement. The Restoration Movement was very anti-Calvinism. They were Arminian. Arminian is the opposite view, and they were very Arminian. Uh, But whenever you have this situation, like Calvary Chapel or like like the Restoration Movement, the churches are autonomous. So there's no hierarchy above you saying, if you're going to be one of us, you got to believe this. Yeah. So each church is elder-led. So that means, uh, like in the Restoration Movement churches, the, the churches, there was diversity because they're they're led by elders, and elders were ha- having different views. Yeah. So it, it kind of depends on the view of the elders as to whether the church, what the church is. Yeah. Um, and so like like Hope Christian Church, uh, I, I, you know, I was only here for five years or so uh, under under Tim. Um, right. But it seemed a very middle middle ground, probably leaning Arminian. Um, For sure it was. Yeah. And I think, yeah, before that, I'm sure it was much more Arminian. Oh, yeah. I'm sure because the, the history of the Christian Church and Church mm-hmm. of Christ, it was, uh, predom- it was, it was Arminian. And um, today, uh, I would say the elders now are, are Calvinistic. Yeah. I am personally. <laughs> Same. Um, and that, uh, that's, so... I would say hope doesn't have their roots in it. No, but that's, it has the roots in the opposite, really. Yeah, and um, but and, the church reflects the leadership at the time. Yeah, yeah, and so, but today, yes, um, I would say yes. Yeah. Well, and that kind of leads into the next question, uh, which really is talking about this idea of election, right? Which. Yes. People will reduce Calvinism and Arminianism oh, yeah. to that singular point. Soteriology, how you're saved. Right. Yeah. yeah. That predestination election is is what really actually most people think of when they hear Calvinism. Right. They think that's what it has to do with, but right. it's really a whole school of thought. Right. Um, but that it does get reduced to that. You're right. It does. Yeah. Calvinists believe that God chooses, and then Arminians believe that that we choose. We mm-hmm. choose God. God chooses us. We choose God. Um so let's read this question. Next question. Hi, pastors and Vinny. Look at Vinny getting a shout out. Poor Vinny hasn't gotten much love lately. Hope everyone is doing well. Uh, well, we are now. I think we were very ill for a long time, all of us. I was finishing up studying Second Peter, and when I got to chapter 3, the promise of Jesus' return, I was wondering how Second Peter 3.9 aligns with what was discussed during the last Atrium podcast, number 66, the, the diet of our Lord. we got to get better titles. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, we're losing it. We should bring up, uh, uh, that's another Reformation Day reference. We'll get to that later. <laughs> is that your Reformation Day costume? Well, the diet, diets used to be something else. They were trials. Right. The diet was a trial, right. like the the diet of worms at Martin Luther. That's where Martin Luther was ex- sentenced to be executed. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> well, if you take it that mean, the diet this guy's of a our riot Lord, at a party. Like uh. Christ, Christ <laughs> went under, underwent a diet when he yeah. was, before he was crucified. Not yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, people man. don't think about this stuff. I, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's because they don't care. Well, I think you're partially right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, the the diet of our Lord. 
relating to uh, an issue of predestination and the discussion that some are made for saving and some are made for destruction. Second Peter 3, 9 reads, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient with us because he does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Thank you for answering my question for all that you do and for this wonderful podcast. P.S. Don't lose the table or Vinny. We had uh, discussions about losing the table and Vinny for season two. Yeah. Uh, going to a couch, but uh, this listener enjoys the. I think we should have more tables and more Vinnies. Yeah, more Vinnies. <laughs> more, more Vinnies. Our presbyter will tell us what to do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> let me let me ask the man who That's answers to for. no one. <laughs> yeah. So this is probably one of the most utilized verse, I would say, uh, in the discussion of predestination, uh, certainly universalism. This verse has always been a point of contention for people as they try to land on a particular, um, we'll say, viewpoint on this uh, idea of election, right? Rob Bell took this thing and ran with it. Yeah. You know, uh, he does not, God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And his thinking was, well, doesn't God get what he wants? Yeah. And if God gets what he wants, then Christ died for all, right? And now here we are at... Yeah, this lim- is this uh, is limited, unlimited lim- atonement. Limited, unlimited atonement. Right. Um, that's what this is. And we discussed this not too long ago. It was a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chad, you and I have talked about it quite a bit. Yeah. And I came to understand this text because it is hard to reconcile this. If God doesn't want anybody to die, if you read it as the out of, I'll say it's context in a sense, and you read it, and I don't know what version she's got here. I'm using the ESV, so I'll just read the, the ESV. I think this might be what she's reading. Uh, let's see here. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Yeah, so it's a little bit different. As some counsel on this, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When you read that, when you take that out, you pluck that out, it's, it's a bit of a head-scratcher because you think, okay, well, God doesn't want anybody to perish, and he certainly yep. has the power to give people faith, or if you are an Arminian, you know, to allow somebody to choose, choose him. And so I spent a little bit of time trying to reconcile this years ago, and— what I what I came to realize is it's not as complex, at least in my mind, um, as many people make it. And it all for me stems back to who's the letter written to, who who is reading these words. We're reading them now, but who is the who was Peter originally writing to? And everything kind of hinges on that word all. Right, not slow for those promises. Some counsel us, but is patient toward you, not wishing that all or any should perish. So any or all of who? And for me, I just went back to the beginning of Second Peter, chapter one. Um, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And then here's the letter. Here's who the letter is addressed to: to those who have tamed, obtained a faith of equal standing with ours the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And a pretty standard, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, or Lord. So, who is this letter written to? The letter's written to the church. 
Peter is writing this to the church, people that have been given faith. God has given them faith, he says, you know, who've obtained faith, this idea of, you know, God has given them that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, faith in grace, and they now believe in Christ, Christ crucified, Christ is the Son. This is the audience of the letter. And so when you read through Peter, when you read through the whole of Scripture, like we've talked about in the past, and this person references this idea of predestination or elect, there's no way to get around election. There's no way to get around it. The Bible teaches election. It's clear that the Bible teaches election. So how do you make this verse fit within what the Bible clearly teaches? You can't just pluck this out and then create a whole new category. How does this fit? Well, here's how it fits in my mind. And again, this might be too simplistic for some people. But when you read this, the letter is written to the church. Peter's writing to the church. And so it may be better read like this. He's speaking to the elect. In fact, it's the same audience that was written to First Peter, uh, to uh, um, the same audience that First Peter was written to. And when you read First Peter chapter 1, here's the opening lines of that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in mm-hmm. Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the for, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. There's that language. We know that God chooses, that God elects. So what could this possibly mean? Here's how I would interpret this. It's written to the church. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, the church, you, the elect, not wishing that any of you the elect should perish, but that all of the elect should reach repentance. In other words, God is slow in fulfilling, or we'll say hitting that first domino of the end of all things. He's slow in being patient, waiting for all those that he has chosen to come to that place when the time is right according to his timetable. He's given everyone faith, He's elected everyone that's ever going to get into heaven. He's chosen, but that's on a timeline. That's on a timetable. So he's not being slow to fulfill his promise. His timetable isn't been completed yet. So he's not wanting any of the elect to perish. So he's waiting for the elect to receive faith, which he's going to give him. And again, that may be too simplistic for some people, but to me, that makes the most sense. He's writing to the church. Peter's writing to the elect. Yeah. God is waiting, not wanting any of the elect to perish. Of course, he's chosen them, so he's not going to let them, he's not going to come back before he's given them faith. So he's waiting until the time is right to give his elect faith, to call them into repentance. And then when that last person that he has called into repentance uh, receives the faith that Christ has given them, then he's going to look over at whoever it is God's going to look over to and say, let's get started. Yeah. <laughs> let's, he's going to look at Jesus and be like, go. Yeah. Go get the church. Uh, so that's how I understand this. If you pull this out, then you get then you get love wins. If you pull this text out, yeah. you then you get universalism. If you pull this text out, then you get proof text for Arminianism. God's not wanting anybody yeah. to perish. He he wants people to come to him, but no, he's he's slow in his promise, or not, or, or uh, the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise. He's just being patient towards the elect, giving the elect time to receive that faith, which he's already preordained them to yeah. receive at a certain time in history. Yeah. So that's how you reconcile that scripture. When and this is this is what gets Christians in trouble all the time is there's a, a text that comes out. Uh, somebody will pull it out of context and they'll go, "Look, this says the opposite of what." The majority of scripture says, mm-hmm. let's create a new category. We don't create a new category. 
we dig a little bit deeper or overturn everything else or overturn yeah. everything else even even worse yeah right create a new category or overturn everything else and that's not what we do we look at the whole of scripture it's pretty clear you know even just reading first and second peter go through you, you know god chooses he's he's made that clear he, from old testament to new testament yeah he chose an entire group of people these are my chosen people yeah it's the language that's using uh, he's used so we know that he elects we know that he chooses and then he chooses some are made for yeah, this is Romans 9, she's talking, you know, our saving and some are made for destruction, uh, vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. And so we don't get around that because it's uncomfortable. We don't create a new category or eliminate that because it's uncomfortable and then find Second Peter chapter 3, 9 and go, oh, see, God doesn't want people to perish. So, he, so Christ died for all, you know, mm-hmm. people do this with uh, John three sixteen for God so loved the world that yeah. he gave his only son that whoever believes, whoever of, of, of what? It's it's digging in. Who's that written to? Who's the Bible written to? Who is it? Who are these letters written to? Who's this? Uh, you know, Peter writing to. He's writing to to the church, and so not uh, so whosoever of the elect. Yeah, that, that's it's you insert these things, and that lines you up not only with the whole of Scripture, but it makes more sense contextually with who the original audience was. Jay, do you got thoughts on this? Uh, other prominent scripture that. Um is touched on with this topic is what you just went through, First Timothy 1 and 2. Right. Um, in, in sermons. So you could go on about that where Paul is instructing Timothy in his leadership of the church, and he says, first of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. And a little bit before that, in chapter 1, Paul is telling Timothy uh, a little bit about his own testimony, that he feels he was the worst of sinners as he was a persecutor and even a murderer, of Christians uh, in his former way of life. And he said, I receive mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in Mm -hmm. him for eternal life. What are your thoughts on those verses in light of somebody who's asking this kind of question? Yeah, it's kind of that, that same, um, language you were in, I'm sorry first Timothy chapter two yeah the end of chapter one yeah and the beginning of chapter two he's talking about all this yeah and that's it it's like we can look at these again and go okay let's create a new category where all of a sudden the uh, burden of pursuing God is placed on the individual mm-hmm. or we can look at the audience we can look at the context we can look at because really the letters to Timothy were written to who to Timothy, they weren't to be read to the church at large. Mm-hmm. So you've got this, um, and then again, you've got this uh, plight that you have to, um, I shouldn't say plight, you have this uh, instruction in Scripture um, that we are to go out and evangelize. So what's the point of evangelism if everybody is uh, elect? What's the point in going and communicating the right. truth of God's Word? And so... You have to figure out, you know, how do we take what Scripture has presented 
with overwhelming clarity and take these texts and are these texts that we sit there and we we hang on or create a new category or back talk um, in these. So mm-hmm. first of all, man, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, chapter two, be made for all people, right? That's a very scriptural thing. Why do we, why does he instruct us to do this? Mark talked about this because why are those leaders in place? Because who put them there, right? God put them there. And so uh, I was talking to somebody literally yesterday who was like, you know, sometimes I feel like it's so useless to pray because God knows the outcome of things anyways. So why do we pray? Well, because he told us to. That, that's it. So we know our leaders are in place, that God has allowed those leaders to be put in place. First of all, then I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, uh, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet and godly lives dignified in every way. We pray because the instruction is there. God knowing certainly whether or not uh, these kings or these people who are in high positions, he's going to give faith. We do this because it's instructed. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. So when you go to verse four, desires all people to be saved, that word desire is an interesting word because it normally expresses uh, kind of God's will or God's decree uh, that God would desire something like this to happen or a bit of a more um, eternal purpose. But God's will and desire, there's a distinction between his desire and like his eternal saving uh, purpose, something that transcends his desire. So there's a difference between this will of decree and this will of desire. And what Rob Bell ran into is this idea of that God, if God desires something, then that, then that is him decreeing something. And there's separation between those two things. Uh, God hates sin. I think we would all agree with that, right? So we could say that God would have a desire for the elimination of sin in all of our lives because God hates sin. Does God have the power to decree, make the rule that sin is eliminated from our lives? Of course he does. He could do that in any one of our lives, but he allows that to play out because his greater eternal purpose is manifest through sin being in our lives. We've talked about this. If there's no sin, there's no forgiveness, there's no grace, there's no mercy. So God desiring all people, and again, context of this is different than Peter. Yeah. Similar language, different context. And I'm not trying to stump you. That's oh, why no. I, I'd go to this one because it is a different um, letter. It's a different form right. of writing and, and everything. So we can't look at those two verses and put them together and go, yeah. well, they must mean the same thing. They right, don't. Right. When you get to Timothy, you have to talk about that that will of desire versus that will of decree and Mm -hmm. God desiring. We know that God uh, hates sin. We know that God is going to eliminate sin eternally, but we also know that God has decreed really that sin exists in this world because he has the authority to do it. So him desiring all men to be saved is him to look at his creation and desire sin to be eliminated, wickedness to be eliminated from the world. But his desire hasn't led to decree. The language of First Peter, First and Second Peter, speaking to the church, talking to the elect—that's something that he has decreed. Whether or not a person is given faith is is decreed from the Lord from from the onset. He knows us before. Uh, he knows us as we're being knit together. He forms us in in the womb. Uh, Ecclesiastes uh, six ten. God preordains 
decrees our life and decrees that outcome. Romans 9, you have all of these sections of Scripture that show us that God decrees the final place of salvation, but God's will of desire is the elimination of sin in our life. And so God can desire something and not decree, and choose not to decree it as an absolute, if that makes any sense. Are you tracking with yeah, that at all? Yeah, oh, okay. sure. And the, and the audience here is just Timothy, who's pastoring a church where the assumption is they're getting together and the church's emphasis is on taking of communion to remember Christ together. And so he goes into verse 5 saying, There's one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom. So these are the people who are already believing in that. They're already um, church members. They are uniting themselves to the body of Christ together um, under the leadership of Timothy. And so that's who it's written to, and that's who he's talking about. Um, is that those people who are take, literally taking... Um, in remembrance of Christ, the Eucharist, the communion, that, that they should be growing in faith, that they already have been given faith and that they have already been given salvation, but they, they grow in maturity. Um, so, th so that's kind of the context in this one. And you see Paul's language, like this word desire, right? You think of the qualifications, like just keep going in Timothy 2. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands. So he's using that word desire. Again, you get over to qualifications. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Desire is a natural thing that humans have. We are a reflection of God, and so God can have desires for things and not a will of desire, we'll say, and not turn those desires into decrees. And so when you look at Timothy, God is not wanting any to pray. He's not slow in keeping his promises. The church is like, what's going on? Like, where's where's this Christ coming back? When are all these things going to come to fruition? Like, we're suffering, we're dealing with persecution, all these types of things. Excuse me. Yeah. And he's like, listen, slow your roll. God's not slow in keeping his promises. He's being patient because he doesn't want any of the elect to go missed. Mm -hmm. So he's going to wait on the elect. With the instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy, the church in Ephesus is a bit of a mess. And he's reminding Timothy, like, hey, listen, you've got all these false teachers. And we don't know the conversations that Timothy and Paul had. Yeah, We really don't know it, when they met, when they met in person, what those things would have would have looked like. But you can imagine if Paul is urging Timothy to stay in Ephesus, then you can reasonably assume that Timothy was maybe running a, a little low on fuel <laughs> in fighting these false teachers. And so maybe Paul is reminding Timothy, like, listen, God hates sin. He hates what they're doing. And he's he's not wanting anybody to 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 perish because he wants the elimination of of sin, right? For there's one God, one meteor. He desires all people to be saved and come to know him. So be patient with these guys. We don't know what's going to happen. But that doesn't mean that all of a sudden that Christ died for all, mm -hmm. right? That's a will of desire. And then the desire there is the elimination of sin, the elimination of you know heresy in, in the church. So yeah. The instruction here again is praying for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Uh, so that's where you have to to dig a little bit. Again, even though you see similar language in Timothy and in Peter, you've got a different audience. You have a really a a different, uh, completely different context of what is being communicated. One being talking about that 
that salvific promise of Christ's return and coming back. God isn't slow in keeping his promises of rescuing his people, pulling his people away, either from, you know, tyrannical rule or, you know, uh, post-mortem getting them into heaven. But he is patient because he's got a timetable for giving his elect faith. And then in Timothy, again, you've got these false teachers that are probably driving these guys up a wall. And it's like, listen, God isn't wanting any to perish. Like he hates what they're doing. He hates sin. He hates, he wants the elimination of that, but he hasn't decreed that at this point. He's leaving sin in the mix and it would be wise for him to leave sin in the mix. Otherwise, what would be the point of Christ coming? Yeah, that's a really good point. He's in Ephesus and there was probably like 50 gods or goddesses that claimed to be true. And a lot of these people were part of these cults or whatever practice they were part of. And these leaders in high positions were yoking themselves. And they were yoking themselves to that. To those gods. Totally. Right. So so for him to rem- remind Timothy, hey, this is the one way. Right. This is the one Jesus Christ whom we worship and, and everything else is dross. Help, help these people that are worshiping uh, among you cut that all out of their lives and cut that all out. And Paul had already seen these people at one point on a missionary journey throw all of their books of sorcery or, and, and what have you into a public bonfire to see that generation say that same thing. Yes to Jesus. He's the one way truth in the life. We've got to follow him and worship him. And obviously those people are going to need a lot more of that reminder to not go back right into following these false ways and false teachers. So that's a really good point you bring up. He's, he might just be reminding Timothy and encouraging him in this letter, um, how to, uh, steward his position well and, and lead well in the context and, and circumstance and people groups he's among. And that, to me, is the more reasonable explanation based yeah. on who wrote the letter and who it's being written to and the purpose of why the letter was written rather than creating a whole subcategory of, well, wait a second, you know, uh, yeah. God is wanting all people to be saved. So Christ must have died for all. Yeah. And Because this is another Rob Bell yeah. Um, I keep saying Rob Bell. If you don't know who Rob Bell is, you know, you can look him up. Um, but he kind of, in the last 20 years or so, really brought this idea of universalism, which yeah. has been around for a while, but really yeah, put it on the... <clears throat> it's not new, but he... he it's like he revived it. He was a popular it, teacher that went, yeah. Yeah, went rogue. <laughs> that went, yeah. Yeah. What do you... you Mark, you have yeah. thoughts on this? Yeah, so I preached on... For, First Timothy two about a month ago, yeah. and uh, I skipped over verse four essentially because it would have been the whole message. Yeah. Um, the first part, though, first of all, pray for all people in intercessions for kings, high, those in high positions, but to look at it as as where God is at in His redemptive plan, and the the gospel is moving from Israel to the world. Mm-hmm. So Revelation seven tells us that every Ooh. tribe and nation and people, in in, in the elect, in in those who make it to heaven. Every tribe and nation people, all peoples are are represented. Right. There's a remnant saved from every people. And so we're now to pray for all people in high authority because from, Gentiles. <laughs> from all people, right. um, there are elect people will be saved. It's yeah. not, not just from Israel. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> it might be more helpful to think of it, pray for all peoples, for kings and, and those in high positions for all people, because God desires all peoples to be saved. Yeah. Um, because that's the context of what's going on. It, it, this is a, a Jewish religion that's spreading to the world. And that that is actually the same explanation for Second Peter 3 as well. Because if you look at the context of Second Peter 3, he's talking about when Christ is going to return. 
because it is written to Jews who or the the dispersed, not right. just Jews, but the Christians who are dispersed and they're being persecuted right. and they're asking why hasn't God come back? Why right. hasn't Jesus come back? He yeah. said he was coming back. It seems things don't seem to be going right. And then the very next verse of verse 10, after it says, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come, should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. So he's talking about the next the next step, like when Christ returns, because that's what they're asking about. Yeah. And so the answer is God is waiting. He's tarrying because he's, he's waiting for all the order of the Gentiles to come in. Uh, we're in Luke. We're studying with the men right now. Christ, Christ gives us this phrase of the age of the Gentiles, uh, and and God's redemptive plan. Christ started, basically, was initiating the kingdom of God, and he also that also triggered the age of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are now being brought in, and we're in that age right now uh, until Christ returns. That Gentiles are being brought in until that's complete, and then Israel will repent, and then um, that's that's eschatology. So. Um, it, it's, it's God waiting now. He's, he wants, basically, he could come back today. You know, he, he's saying, you know, Christ could come back today, but he's being patient. So all of his elect can be in because there are elect that were elect a hundred, you know, there's, there's elect in the future, even they're right. potentially not even born right now. And, um, God knows who they are, but we don't, but they're all, he's waiting till they all come in. And that view, even that view can be miss, can be, uh, miss mistrued i guess um because people take that to be well that means then you know as soon as there's no more you know christians that will be saved no more like then christ will return and that means they'll take that to mean well as soon as the church has lost its efficacy that's how we'll know so this decline in the church is actually god ordained and you know the the church will basically go down to nothing it'll lose its evangelistic uh um efficacy and we'll no longer be making disciples that's how we know when the end times will come I don't think that's appropriate either. I don't think the church will ever, the church will be here as long as we are here because Christ said that as much. Um, but yeah, like the, the truth is there are verses when you read them, they are very Calvinistic. And the truth is there are verses when you read them, they are very Arminian. And this is my personal struggle where, where I went through for years. Like if you take out certain verses, they seem to say one thing. Mm -hmm. And then there are other verses, you read them, and they seem to say the exact opposite. And so I had to wrestle with all these verses, First Peter, Second Peter 3, 9, 1 yeah. Timothy 2, 4 included, like what is being taught as a whole? Because right. one verse here is difficult to interpret, and you never let verses that are difficult to interpret overrule the rest of Scripture. You know, if you have... 95% of scripture teaching seeming to teach one thing, but this one verse stands out. You don't let that one verse interpret the rest of the 95%. You let scripture interpret scripture. Um, and if we look at the context of, of God's redemptive plan of what's going on, is that the gospel's moving from Israel to the whole world, and things aren't going as they necessarily thought they would. In fact, they're not going well at all. Well, this was the problem in Ephesus. People are dying. False teachers are being brought into the right. church uh, in Ephesus. False teachers are being brought in. Uh, the The audience for Peter was uh, people were being persecuted, right. and they, like things things seem to be going wrong. The ship seems to be sinking. Should we jump off? 
And uh, and so the encouragement here is no, God is God is being patient because he wants his elect to be saved. And that's his plan. And he knows he knows what his plan has always been. It hasn't ever changed. It's always been the same. And and that's that's something we take confidence in, we take comfort in, because God knows what he's doing. This is not this is not an arbitrary thing. So um, yeah, that there there's my take. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, anyways. <laughs> no, don't trick or treat. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not on Reformation Day. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. It really does just boil down to context, looking at that audience. You know, Mark brings up a, a great point. You know, the, the message was moving from just Jews, these false teachers that are in Ephesus are still trying to enslave. You see this in Hebrews. You see that they're still trying to enslave people to the old law. You got circumcision is still the thing. Excuse me. Let's kick you under the table. Um, and so it's available to all different kinds of people. You know, God's wanting, right? And, and you see it right out there's one mediator between God and, and men, like men, not just Jewish men, not just Gentile men as a whole, people as a whole. Um, so he's, you know, what Paul's doing is reminding Timothy of widening it. Then it's also likely just instruction to, to one guy who's got these guys who are creating all problems. And it's like, you know, want them out. Like, no, he's not wanting it. Like, give these guys a shot. God can redeem. He redeemed me. Look at some of the language that Paul talks about, you know, as himself. And he's the poster child for being, um, you see some first Timothy, like he, he's, reminding and being reminded and reminding other people all the time of his deep need for grace. And if God can save him, then God can save anybody. And so it's just, it's that type of language that opens it up mm. um, to. Yeah, that's helpful. Inserting in a way, but then just kind of using some basic, you know, common sense that this is, you know, this is what's going on in these yeah. specific churches. If as, he can as well. save me, he can save whoever he wants. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you see that in 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 First Timothy, mm-hmm. right? He's he's got this. <clears throat> where is it? The end of chapter one. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he's saying the trust saying he's trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So he's he's making that point and he's continuing on in that point. Um and all that needs to be kept in mind because there were people that were questioning Paul's authority, his spiritual authority. And you know, here's this guy who people don't even think should be maybe in his position giving qualifications for people that are going to be in that position. And so all of that plays its role in the entire text. We take it one verse at a time or, um, you know, one chapter at a time, but it's sometimes it's a little bit, it's not as helpful to do that because we, we slow down sometimes too much and stop down on certain things. But yeah, this is a great question. Thank you to our listener for uh, asking this question. Hopefully that was helpful and not confusing at all. Do we have time for one more? Super duper everyone. One more. Do you have more? No, no, I'm good. Okay. Do we have time? Let's do it. Yeah, we got the time. It's a we long owe one. people <laughs> many, many <laughs> hours of podcasting. <laughs> if you stayed here after the poop talk, you made it all the way here. I was trying to be uh, congrats <laughs> as vague as possible. <laughs> vague. I said gastro. <laughs> Dysentery is not vague. <laughs> Well, when Chad started snickering like a 13-year-old boy. Oh, don't put this on me. 
I got it from somebody. <laughs> you were sick at the last podcast. Oh, no, I blame, always, I blame Henry. I blame Henry. Yes. Henry and his school friends and his inability to, oh. I watched Henry wash his hands the other day, <laughs> put soap on his palm. Did you just learn that? <laughs> no, no, no. no. It's nice. We'll be taught, we've taught him a thousand times, right? What to do, but he's impatient, right? Yeah. Tell him count to 20. Mm. You get in there, you're rubbing around. It's not going to happen. No. <laughs> no. But we also want to teach him to be independent. I want to have to sit there and stand over him every time he washes his hands. Yeah. And so I was peeking in the bathroom while he was washing his hands. He puts the soap right in the palm, proceeds to cock his fingers back and just rub his palms together mm. and then rinses. <laughs> and I said, Henry, I go, you're about to eat these veggie straws. You going to pick them up with your palms yeah. or are you going to use your fingers? He's like, fingers. So he's soap touch your fingers. He's like, no. I'm like, let's head back in there. Let me give you another tutorial here. I thought you said wash focus, everything but the fingers. Focus on the fingers, man. Focus on the fingers. So anyways, that's how we all end focus up Focus on the fingers. Focus on the fingers. It's like, it's like focus on the family. Yeah. <laughs> New ministry. Uh, yeah, speaking of, this one's about tough love. Here we go. <laughs> there you go. Here we go. I just saw the subject title, Empathy, Tough Love, Boundaries. I'm confused. <laughs> I really, really enjoy that. Uh, all right, the question says, hello, thank you in advance for taking time to answer my questions. I feel like it's a little bit of a word vomit because I'm trying to put it all together, so I apologize <laughs> if it confuses you. During service, it caught my attention when we read the end of First Timothy, and Paul said he handed over... How do you say this guy's name? H. Hymenaeus. Uh, Hymenaeus or Hymenaeus? Hymenaeus, Hymenaeus. Yeah, it, it depends. And Alexander, him, much easier to say, uh, to Satan. It reminded me of 1 Corinthians 5.4, where Paul says to deliver a man to Satan so his spirit might be saved. I'm confused what he means by giving them to Satan. At the end of both statements, he alludes to them learning a lesson from their experience. Does this equate to allowing someone in modern times to hit rock bottom? I went home and read 1 Timothy and came across in chapter 5, Paul giving some guidelines or qualifications to who should receive help. I guess my overarching question would be, are we supposed to let people fail or struggle when they refuse to live more righteously according to the word of God? Is that giving them to Satan? What do these verses mean for us as Christians in regards to how we help our fellow man? We don't hold unbelievers to the same standard as believers. Does this change depending on who in your life needs the helping? Also, Paul in 1 Timothy 2.1 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings— Oh, we just read this. Be made for all people. So I'm thinking he is still praying for these men he gave to Satan, not completely dismissing them. Uh, which goes along with the gospel that's all have sinned and fall short, but Jesus saves us if we agree to lay down our lives and follow him. No one is out of reach for Jesus. Hopefully you get what I'm saying and can help me understand the, the whole giving someone over to Satan thing. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting, um, that's some interesting language that Paul uses for sure in the New Testament, like we're handing them over to Satan. Um so I guess the, the, the foundational lay is in uh, another part of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, right? Yeah, 4.4 4 says, uh, in their case, and he's talking about unbelievers, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul calls Satan the God of this world uh, there. And so... If the person is acting worldly, 
He's basically saying you hand them over to where they belong. There's a home to which you belong in the church. It's the kingdom of God. It's almost like the church is the body of Christ made up of those who, by grace through faith, are citizens of God's kingdom, God's household. Um, so, yeah, like she mentions 1 Corinthians 5, 4, 1 Timothy 1, 20, and then kind of the whatever third or fourth part of her question is 1 Timothy 5, 3. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4, uh, the, the context is a, a man who is sexually immoral. It's basically incest. Um, he's having a relationship with, it seems to be, his stepmother. And he's unrepentant. People have come to him and said, hey, you need to get out of this relationship. It doesn't reflect God's design for marriage and, and sexual relations. Uh, so you're not honoring him, and you're living worldly and not in a way that aligns with um, this household. And he seems to not care. He keeps on having this relationship. And because of that, Paul says, if this continues, then you excommunicate this person because they are acting in a way that belongs to the God of the world, not the God of this household. So hopefully that helps answer that question um, in, in order to hand this person over to Satan. It seems to me the part that, that it says, um, where she says, it seems like this equates to somebody um, maybe learning a lesson and coming back home. It, yeah, it seems like that's what Paul desires. It seems like that's what Paul is communicating God desires, that this person would recognize that, um, whoa, I am. I have no part with the Lord. I have no relationship with the God who saves me. They've, they've kicked me out. And so that kind of should parallel. That's what my eternity will look like. I'm being handed over to the world and there's no eternal value there. There's there's nothing good there. Like I'm just filling my life with something that that will never truly fulfill me. And so they would they should hopefully desire to repent and come back home. Yeah, that's what the whole yeah. goal is. Um, again, it's kind of like restoration. Yeah, it's it's restoring the person. Uh, the, yeah. the hopes the hope is you're res, you're helping the person be restored but it is it is almost like deportation like we belong to the kingdom we belong to this house we belong to this nation you're deporting them back to the god of the world because they're acting worldly um again i, I kind of mentioned this with neil's question these people are coming together all the time to remember christ to remember even if they're persecuted uh, they have an eternal home and they have a hope that they look forward to and, and so they take communion together they take the cup and they take the bread and they remember Christ's body and his blood sacrificed on their behalf. And so you can't be having this relationship with your stepmom all the time and then keep coming in here and acting like you belong to Christ and you have this union with him. Yeah. You've you've got to move you gotta move out of here for a little bit. You gotta move out of the house for a little bit. Um, so that's kind of the first part of the question. The second part, um, she asked real quick is from 1 Timothy 5, 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Um, and goes on to describe widows who have shown good works and served their communities. Where's the part where she asked that question? There's, there's a lot in here. It's a long question. <laughs> so that middle one went home with Paul giving some good lines. Oh, well, yeah. Who should receive yeah. help? Okay, so we're... If we're kicking this person out, it seems like Paul would pray for that person. The church would pray for that person. Yes, um, but we don't 
I guess she's saying like we don't help them anymore because they don't belong to us anymore. But then there's some widows whom we say we don't help them either, and we help certain other ones. And um, yeah, that is an interesting, weird one again. Where First Timothy five three, that's the one where it's like only sixty year old widows should be helped, right? <laughs> yeah, it gives more specific qualifications than most people would probably think. Yeah. Uh, and the idea is that the widows should be true widows in the sense that yes. they really need help. Um, they don't have family they can that can help them because the, the call first is on their family. Exactly. Again, yeah. here, we're a household, and so we're going to help out uh, anybody who really, really needs our help, like family, where there <coughs> seems to be widows who are more like mooches or con artists. They're using their situation, their right. circumstance for selfish gain, and Paul's saying, hey, be discerning. They don't need help. They're actually abusing that situation in a sinful right. way. Um, so true widows are those who are active. They're they're there in support of everybody else, just like a family member would be. Um, so yes, be be in sacrificial community with them. Give of yourself to them because they're in need. Um, verse nine of that First Timothy. Chapter 5 says no widow is is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry and will be therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. So... Don't help if it's uh, a person uh, that's, you know, using the situation for selfish gain, but but help those who are truly, I guess, qualified for it because they're acting like family. Yeah. It's kind of the whole theme of the question. <laughs> Make sure that they're acting like family. Make sure you see the fruit of a family member who actually is, is working on being united with Christ. But if they're not, then why are they here? Yeah. So the other thing we have to keep in mind is that, you know, some of these specific instructions were probably because of what was happening in, in Ephesus. Yeah. Um, I am certain that if there was a young widow that truly needed help, <laughs> yeah. that the church wasn't going to necessarily push her away. You know, I don't know if these are because people take these and then, you know, these are universal commands for, for the truth. They were commands at the time. Um because again, you can have um, specific instances happening in in a church, and you see this all throughout the New Testament that aren't necessarily universal commands for the church at large. You talked about this in relationship, uh, Mark, to the braiding of hair, right? I was watching when you were talking about, uh, you know, the, uh, in First Timothy chapter two, the the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold. Jewelry, and I think I told you I looked around at all these women sitting in our church with braided hair and or gold jewelry. The call there wasn't necessarily for that. The call was to what modesty, and so you know that was an immodest thing to do in that church. And so the call to modesty was there. And the call here is not for us today. Isn't like okay. You know, we've got a widow and she's 59 and we're like, you get out of here. <laughs> it's, it's, do they need the help? Where the overarching theme for what you were talking about and, and you referenced, you know, homecoming dresses and that kind of stuff was to modesty. The, the idea here is that these people actually need help. They need what they're, um, what they're asking for. And so, um, 
I just wanted to highlight that because again, we can read through this and go, oh man, you know, is this a key ingredient? Like we're going to get to chapter five. What's a key ingredient of a church? Is it helping 60, over 60 year old widows or is the call to, you know, something greater of helping those that have actual need, which is becoming increasingly more difficult because we're seeing more and more scammers out there. You know, we've got a process here at the church for benevolence um, because we just can't take people coming in off the street and saying, you know, we need a, a thousand bucks to pay our mortgage or our rent. And we go, okay. Yeah. That applies to us today. Like people right. come into the church and they assume because we're a church, we just hand out money. Absolutely. And that's what we do. That's what, you know, that's what the Bible tells us. And that's not, that's actually not what the Bible is telling us to do. The Bible is telling us to be stewards of it and to kind of protect our own. Watch very much. So. Watch out for our own first because care for the body of faith first. Um, and then not to redirect or give too much, you know, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a heavy duty thing. And so it, the instruction is that the church steps in and just solves every problem. Yeah. It's that we train the church, the organism, the people of the church to step up and take care of their yeah. own families. The church isn't the fall on. It's not, we're, we're not, um, a shelter, so to speak, where we just, you know, or, or hand out or uh, you know, a bank. It's not what the church is for. We're there to help, but it's the responsibility of of, of the church yeah. to fit, fit those needs. Not today. Right. In the in the day this was written, it looked different. Social security didn't exist then. Correct. And widows would be dependent on the church for their food. Um, rightfully so. Right. But they're saying the family should be providing first, and then the church can provide second if needed. Um and I think that even somewhat applies today to, to Social Security. There are other means uh, that have, that are set up um, to the point where the church is no longer that first, you know, the dependence of they're not going to eat if they don't if they don't have this. Right. Well, yeah. And you look at deacons, right? Why were the deacons instituted in Acts? Right. It was the distribution yeah. of food to who? Right? The widows. Yeah. And that wasn't a the picture there's not a you know once a quarter service project no it was a regular thing right mm -hmm. yeah, yeah absolutely so um and yeah i think this language of being handed over to satan we see that and we're like holy cow like that's really heavy and it is <laughs> yeah. heavy because like i shared in this the sermon that the, this individual is referring to you know what that that means is exactly what you said, Chad. They're it, they're out of they're no longer under the spiritual authority and protection of the of the church. The church has released them. It's Matthew eighteen. You know, uh, you can imagine that the guy who was um, sleeping with his stepmom. It wasn't like they found out and were like, "You're out of here." That wouldn't have. There were probably conversations. Uh, you can assume maybe uh, that were had because the information is getting back to to Paul. Yeah, they've been um, letting him hang around for a while. Until, right. Until and, Paul wrote to them. Right. And and so, but you would hope that somebody would have been like, hey man, that's not the yeah. right thing to do. So you don't, we don't know. But again, Matthew 18 comes into play. You see another brother or sister, you know, uh, Galatians 6, that's caught in a sin or another brother that's caught in the, the trap or snare of sin. You, you go to them, you try to restore them humbly and gently. Matthew 18, somebody sins against you. You go to whom directly, you do all those types of things. But it gets to a point where you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. You, you remove them from the church, mm -hmm. and the goal is to either re-evangelize or restore. Um, so what this individual is saying is, you know, so I'm thinking, is he still praying for these men he gave to Satan? Well, we would we would think so, yeah. you know, uh, because he, he just said we got to pray for all people, and, and that can, you know, be widened to... Uh, 
ethnicity background, Gentiles, Jews, all of that, but but certainly for you know um, those that need Christ. So you would hope that, which goes along with the gospel that all have sinned but fallen short. Yeah, that's absolutely true. No one's out of the reach for Jesus. Uh, true. When we go back to our conversations, you know, certainly no one's out of Jesus's reach, but Jesus has already decided who he's going to reach at this point. But it's our job to to pray and to evangelize. You know, Romans ten. They don't know because they haven't heard. We don't hold believers to the same standard or non-believers to the same standard as believers. Does this change depending on who in your life needs helping? I, you know, there's there is that fine line between enabling. Every situation is is different. Ultimately, what I would say is if that if there's a person in your life that doesn't know Christ and they need help and it's legitimate help and you have the means to do it and um then you should probably you should probably do it. That's part of how we care for people, right? A cup of water in Jesus's name. You know, why are you helping me? Well, the Lord has provided for me. I can help you. If it's not enabling behavior, you know, if you've got somebody you know that's a, a rabid alcoholic and they're coming to you and they're like, hey, I need 20 bucks for my electricity. And you're like, okay, here's $20. And you don't track that money. You don't follow that money. You know, there's ways to help people that you can help ensure that that money is going to where it needs to be. And you're not enabling somebody, giving them 20 bucks to go out and get a drink. You know, that's a very you know, um, weird example, but I mean, those types of things happen. We've all been on an exit ramp and seen somebody holding a sign saying need money for food, right? Do you give that person money? Well, what do you feel? You know, do you trust that you just say, okay, Lord, I, I want to be generous to this person. Do you take them through? Do you vet them? That's between ultimately between you and the Lord. Um, so I think, yeah, is it handing someone over to Satan mean them hitting rock bottom? Uh, not necessarily. It's a little bit more intentional than than that. I think, you know, we need to, at some point, it can be helpful to move on because it, it can be, you see this probably with CR, right? These codependent relationships where somebody's just, they're draining each other and it, it gets to the point where it's healthier to just move on or move away from the relationship because it, it's not, no one's being helped in any way, shape or form. They continue to feed on one another and enable one another. And so there's probably periods and times where you need to, to move on and it really is case by case. And so uh, when we look at, you know, what the scripture instructs, we're to be forgiving, we're to be generous, we're to be Christ's ambassador, we're to be sacrificial, uh, but we're to be good stewards at the same time. And so it's not about just writing blank checks to everybody, signing blank checks and handing blank checks out to people financially, emotionally, mentally, um, because th- those are resources as well. We only have so much emotional bandwidth, so only so much, you know, mental bandwidth, uh, so we need to be careful with those things as well. And there there can be times where it's best to step back and step away from a certain relationship or a certain situation because it's a it winds up becoming poor stewardship financially or you're not able to recover uh, um, you know from a mental state or an emotional state. But you know, do you continue to pray for those people? Yeah, I think I think you do. I think that that's what the scriptures instruct us to do. So Mark, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, so does this equate to allowing someone in modern times to hit rock bottom? Yes, I think it does. I think uh, she mentioned up in her subject boundaries. Christians, we sometimes struggle with setting boundaries because yeah. we feel like like we should be boundaryless, and I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. I don't think um, I don't think that's what the product parable of the prodigal son teaches. Did the father let the son go off to hit rock bottom? I think he kind of did. Yeah. Um, 
and 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 most you know she gives the example of Hymenius and Alexander, but you know they're they're not. <clears throat> Most people aren't dealing with church discipline. That's that's the elders. There, people, you know, Christians are generally dealing with probably family members or close friends that are toxic and have done things to the point that they've hurt them yeah. repeatedly. And so, how much do we keep? How much do we forgive them? How where do we set our boundaries? I think boundaries are appropriate and are healthy. Um, we. There's a guy in CR. He's he's like on the national team, but he runs the. There's a a biker group uh, called Broken Chains, and they're all these guys in recovery that mm. like motorcycles. And he's like a biker dude to the extreme. Like he's got the long hair and the tattoos, and he wears the vest. He's got this big scratchy voice, and he's just just you know complete fits the profile. Yeah, and he's great. And in his testimony, he shares the story, and he struggled with chemical abuse and addiction, and and he shares this story as a long descent down to rock bottom. And as he went on, his parents uh, enabled him. They they would give him money or they would not break ties with him when they really should have yeah. to the point that he was, he was you know, abusing that. And he, he gives this line in his testimony saying that they literally almost loved me to death mm. to the point that their love, what they were doing out of love, almost killed him. Like he was, his heart stopped, I think three times he said something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and, and he, he, he came back, he, or well, he, he, he repented because he knew this, he met this pastor in a bar once. It's an awesome testimony, but that line stuck out to me. They literally almost loved me to death because they, they continued to enable and feed into his behavior and what he was doing. Whereas a boundary should have been set. They should have been cut off, which would he should have been cut off which would have been the hard thing to do, but it would have been the thing that would have been right for him. I, I want to go to Luke 17 for a minute. Uh, I think it touches on this. Uh, Jesus' teaching, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So it, we're basically being put on the level of Judas. Woe to us if we cause somebody to sin. So we have to be very careful that our behavior is not enabling sin in someone else's life. Second, or verse three, second point, continuing. <laughs> I, I'm not going to outline this. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So we are told by Jesus, if somebody sins, we are called to call them out and say, you are sinning. Yeah. You are rebuke them. And if he repents, forgive him. So there's a condition there. If the person repents, forgive them. And if he sins again, and he sins, sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So... This kind of goes hand in hand with the whole, you know, how many times do we forgive somebody? Seven times. Oh, that verse is such a hot 70 verse. Seven <laughs> times. Like, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the condition is always there that they're repenting. But this is what happens in these codependent enabling relationships. They always come back and they're always, you know, I'm so sorry. They, they, and they're repenting. Okay, if they are, we're not going to judge that. If, we, if that's what they say, we need to trust them. God will sort out their hearts. And, and But we read this and we think, well, God is saying you need to forgive them an infinite number of times. Continually, continually forgive them. But you also have to be careful with what was just set up in verse 2. Are you causing them to sin by your behavior? 
And when he says, if they sin against you seven times in the day, turn to them and, and turn back and forgive them seven times. So he says seven times. He doesn't say an infinite number of times. He says seven times. And that that there's there's metaphor being used here because seven is the, the number of completeness. So forgive them in a way to you that is complete, but also not in a way that is infinite. I think I think this is teaching us a boundary. This is not saying you continually forgive them, but you need to f- forgive them to a degree that is complete and holy. Seven's the whole the number that represents holiness. So there's discernment here. We don't we don't use this example and say, oh, okay, I need to forgive you seven times. That's your limit. Once you hit seven, that's it. That's that's not what's being taught here. It's like the the braids in the in the jewelry. It's not specifically the braids in the jewelry. You have to see the principle being taught. Yeah. You have to complete them in you have to forgive them in a, a whole a whole complete way. Sometimes that means you stop forgiving them because it be, it becomes enable enablement because it's easy to discern that their their repentance is not genuine. And it's not on us to to judge people, but it's also on us to use wisdom and discernment and know when we're being taken for a ride. And 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 I'll just say this. Uh, love is not always you've said it before, love is not always a hug. Yeah. Sometimes love is very different. <laughs> a, a whack. <laughs> oh, I heard a quote yesterday. I'm gonna remember for the rest of my life. Uh Thomas Sowell, the uh He's an economist. He said, if you, if you, if you want to help somebody, you tell them the truth. If you want to help yourself, tell somebody what they want to hear. Mm. And so in these relationships that get codependent and we, we refuse to, to, to show tough love, uh, we think we're being empathetic and we're being compassionate, but really we're just doing more damage because we're refusing to tell them the truth. Yeah. We've already been told that we're supposed to rebuke them and call them out on their sin and call them to repentance. So if they are repenting, we are to forgive them. But I think there's a limit on it. There's a limit. Let's let's just qualify that word forgiveness because there's a limit on forgiveness that results in no change of behavior. For example, think about like a, a husband who repeatedly is cheating on his wife and the wife forgives him and they just go back to living life like normal, living life like normal. It gets to the point where she can't take it anymore. She doesn't forgive the, hus- the husband to the point of not changing the behavior. There's there's a separation that takes place. There's you know counseling that takes place. There's a change in behavior. But the forgiveness is as far as the posture of forgiveness goes, because forgiveness is a really complex, I've had some of the hardest conversations and even wrestled myself with what is this concept of forgiveness? What does it look like? Because we're called to forgive as Christ forgave. Um, you know, there are, you are forgiven. You have not repented of every one of your sins, right? N- none of us, right? We, we can't even remember all of our sins. And then when we read that, it goes, people will take that section of scripture that you just read in Luke and go, well, if they don't repent, then I don't have to forgive them. Yeah, it doesn't not forgiveness as a state before the Lord, a state of carrying bitterness. It's more speaking to forgiveness that results in no change in behavior or action in relationship or proximity to that person. Am am I making sense here? It's making sense in my head as I'm saying it, but 
In other words, you just continue on in the relationship as if there is no change. That that type of forgiveness or the, the result of um, action that results from that forgiveness, that has to change. But we still have to have that posture before the Lord where we're not carrying around that bitterness and that rage towards the individual. Um, you can separate yourself from that person, but still have clear conscience before them, pray for them, uh, bring them before the Lord. Yeah. That, that posture of forgiveness, and again, forgiveness is, I think, infinitely complex um, because the picture for us is Christ and the picture for, uh, is we are to forgive as God has forgiven us, which God does that unconditionally, right? God forgave us before we didn't made a move. That's what he did. If, if we're all Calvinists here or close to it, then God made the move, right? So he instituted that forgiveness for our sins, put that faith in us and we didn't in, in, in that repentance was the result of that realization that he did in, in our hearts. And so just to quant, cause I don't want, I'm tracking with what you're saying, but I don't, I, I don't want somebody who maybe um, to hear that and, and think, okay, well, I don't have to forgive somebody. Cause then they'll, they'll reduce that forgiveness down to, well, I can be bitter and I can be angry at them still. Yeah. And, and we can't, we can't do that. Like right. we knew anger is listed in our sins of the flesh. So um, it's forgiveness to the point where there's no, there's no rebuking, there's no um, change in behavior or proximity to the individual or the situation that needs to change. But the posture before the Lord needs to still be a heart that's willing to forgive. So, and in that posture, you're gonna feel grief. You're gonna feel oh s- sorrow, big time for yeah. that other person, and just know that that's natural and normal. But that's still what we're called to. Like Mark said that complete forgiveness is I've done everything on my part right? to forgive. And yeah, to, with a clean conscience. With yep. a clean conscience. As yep. Christians, we're to be the most forgiving people there are. Amen. The most grace-filled people, the most forgiving people that there are. Yeah. Um, but not to the point of enabling. Not to the point of enabling. Yeah, and causing that, them to sin. That's why I don't love the term tough love, because we're, we're really putting up so yeah, false qualifier. Yeah, it's a false it's qualifier. Love. Yeah, it's love, and and there are boundaries we're called to have. That's not toughness. That's just yeah. uh, wise. <laughs> yeah, and what you have to do to protect your heart and protect uh, your side of the the forgiveness. Yeah, people yeah. really struggle with forgiveness because there's this. Uh, we feel this pressure. I think a lot of us do. I've felt it. I've talked to other people that have felt it where um, someone does something to you or a situation happens and you're having a hard time not looking at that individual with bitterness or disdain. And they're like, they feel like they haven't forgiven because every time they see that individual, they can't not think about that situation. And we have to go, okay, well, what's the expectation there? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, we cannot, the call to forgive as Christ forgives is... That's a goal you aim for. (laughs) That's not, you can't really ever achieve that unless God does a Mm. unique work in you because that's a miracle. That's a miracle that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like that's part of the, that's part of the good news is that we serve a God who is able to take that which was dead and give life to, and that which doesn't deserve forgiveness, hasn't repented and, and draw and give them faith, draw them to himself, and then give them faith. And so that's what we shoot for is a more complete, and I love that word that you said, Mark, like that more complete type of forgiveness um, where you feel like you've done everything you can do. And the expectation is that forgiveness, that posture uh, changes. It's, it's a condition of the heart 
where slowly over time, that bitterness starts to subside, but it doesn't ever fully necessarily gone, gone away. I, there are people that have said horrific things to me that still come to this church. That's the truth. And when I see those people, <laughs> I still think about those terrible things they said. Like, and He's it, looking at two of them. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> During this podcast. <laughs> um, and I mean, that's the truth. I don't hold it against them. I feel like I've forgiven them because at the end of the day, you and I have been talking a lot about this. Everybody has their moment. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think people are maliciously trying to be hurtful or hurt our feelings. And there are some people out there, but I don't feel like I have great enemies out there. I'm not King David feeling assailed on every side, right? There's moments where people get upset about certain things that they are that are important to them, that they desire be as important to you. And they don't understand why it's not as important to you, why it doesn't hit you in the same way, and it just doesn't. And that is often uh the result of that is words that are fueled by uh, frustration. And everybody's got those moments. They call them tantrums when they're kids, right? I look at Henry, I tell him no on something, he loses his mind. Depending on my mental state in the day, some some days I'm like, I feel bad for him. Yeah, And it sounds crazy. It's like, you teach your kid not to have tantrums. He can't control that. This is the biggest deal in the world to him. This morning, he's like, are we gonna go tr- trick or treating tonight? And I go, buddy, I don't know. It's supposed to rain. And he was, ah! <laughs> and he was throwing himself on the ground and crying. And he was devastated. Yeah. Why? Because it's going around getting a bunch of candy, right? That's, that's it. And that for to a six-year-old, that's a big deal. But that's just a moment. That's not the standard. That's not where he, where he lives. Um, and so forgiveness to me is when the standard is... I feel clear before the Lord when I think about the individual that caused the grievance to me. I'm not sitting there with a, a voodoo doll, <laughs> you know, poking them in their their foot, going, "How's that bunion feel?" Right? That's yeah. It's that kind of posture. But forgiveness is a tough, tough topic for sure. Yeah, you brought up somebody that um, might think that they've forgiven somebody else, and and then they still feel guilty because oh, I'm supposed to forgive like Jesus, so I'm I'm right. supposed to be over this. I'm supposed to not feel bitterness and all that. So. So what's wrong with me? Well, our our natural reaction, our most natural reaction to somebody wronging us is bitterness and and even hate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, violence toward them and and so you're killing the natural reaction because that's the sinful person right. who you were and it does again, I'll say the word grieve. It's grieve, it's loss. You're killing a part of you that had been a part of you all your life. You're, tur- you're turning the Titanic around to become a new person in Christ. And so you're, you're shooting for looking like Christ. Yeah. In situation. And that doesn't mean you embrace the bitterness. It doesn't mean that you don't actively repent. It's mm-hmm. not, we're not whitewashing sin and being like, well, you can't really do it anyway. So no, you work towards it like anything else. Yeah. But at the same time, I see people and have met with people that are just absolutely wrecked. Cause they're like, I cannot seem to forgive this person yeah. how Christ has forgiven them. Like I should be loving them and sincerely loving them. And then you start going, okay, yes, that's, that's true. But you also, it's it, it, sometimes it takes time. Yeah. It takes time uh, for, you know, those things to, to quiet down. And that's on the Lord's timetable. Like you're frustrated with yourself, but at the same time, like who has to do that work in us? The Lord has to do that work. And it's a mystery on how, <laughs> our responsibility and what he puts in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, it's progress, right? It's as long as you're not going backwards and you're seeing some progress and you're continuing to move forward and 
staying in the word and doing the things that you should do, then, you know, um, those, it, it can just take a long time to, to get that done. But again, you never want to enable. That's a, that's the most important thing. So nice bow tie. Whew. Well, what do you think guys? Ah, happy reformation rainy day. Are you, will the kids dress up and we celebrate privately? Do you? <laughs> and what time? I just, I don't remember getting an invite. Uh, will you take the kids? on private. Will they, do you feel comfortable <laughs> saying? What's that? Will you, will you take the kids tonight somewhere? Trick or treating? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Do okay. You're, you're on a busy road. You go to a neighborhood? Yeah, the one behind our house, right? It's just okay. There's a neighborhood behind our house. How's the pool? How's the you, you know what's is the it, pool? Yeah, you getting some good stuff from the houses back oh, there? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of houses back there. Yeah, it's a, a lot of kids in that community. So. Did you also think of swimming pool? Like we don't have a neighborhood <laughs> pool. <laughs> How's the pool? How's the, the community water? pool? Right. It's too yeah. cold for that. Of right. course. Yeah. No, no, no. It's like, what are you pulling in? What are you pulling in, candy wise? From King size yeah. Hershey's or what? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we get full size. Some places, some houses get out full size bars. What will the children go as? Uh, Oscar's gonna be Martin Luther. Uh, oh, beautiful. Cece's gonna be John Calvin. Oh, okay. And uh, Veda's gonna be me. Interesting. No, so, so two cross dressers. We need to talk to you about this. Uh, Trinity Junior. Right. The some Trinity. something in scripture about women wearing um, men's clothing, but uh, I'm just. Oscar's a, a teenage mutant ninja turtle. Classic. Which one? Uh, Raphael. Oh, um, Sai. So he's got the size. Yeah, it's right? pretty violent. Um, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to watch it as a kid. Yeah, so my kids are getting more it. than I than yeah. I did. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah. And then Veda will be, um, a bat and <laughs> a baseball bat. Or no, <laughs> <laughs> of course not. A flying bat. A flying and, bat. Um. And CC's a butterfly. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. What are the weapons called that Oscar has? Size. 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 Size, yeah. Are they going to be actual size? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Actual plastic ones. (laughs) So both of the girls went as uh, flying things. Veda, did the children tell you? And then do you have to turn... Veda's wearing a bat costume that um, her grandma made and actually her mom wore when she was a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's adorable. Yeah. Yeah. I think Cece wore it last year. I don't know. It's just they get they're attached to it. Yeah. And uh, we had a butterfly costume around the house and Cece just picked that. Will you wear anything festive? Just a jacket? Uh, I'll wear a coat. Yeah. Okay. And um, (laughs) what color? Would it be orange? Uh, no. Technicolor? It'll be, uh, your standard gray. <laughs> yeah. Did yeah. you guys carve anything pumpkin-wise? No. <laughs> we painted. They painted some pumpkins with Nana. <laughs> People. <laughs> pumpkins. I feel like I'm on the, on the hot seat here for Halloween. No, like, I'm not. I just, I'm trying to figure out. Ham? Well, Ledger's pretty young. I don't imagine you guys are going to do much, will you? Or? Yeah, no, he's dressing up as a little shark. Is he? Baby okay. Shark. He'll go as Baby Shark, Baby like shark. the song, Baby Shark. It is just like a gray okay. shark costume. Did he choose that or did you choose no. that for him? Liz went and bought it. Okay. CC was baby shark. She bought a couple. Was she? Okay. I think yeah. she bought an avocado costume and a shark costume. Oh, okay. And of course, as soon as he saw the shark, he's he's just crazy about baby shark. So. Is he? Okay. Yeah. He likes the song and all that. Loves the song. And it 
it, it's wearable, but it's also kind of a stuffed animal. So he's like slept with it and everything already. Oh, he, lo- he looks okay. at it as like a little stuffed animal too. Yeah. It's supposed to be cold tonight. Yeah. And possibly, the more you're mentioning it. Possibly snow. The more I'm like, nah, not going. <laughs> yeah, I saw it. It could he's, possibly snow tonight. He's only two. So yeah. the candy will be mine. <laughs> That's know? the problem. Like Henry's got all these food allergies. So, you know, we got people in our neighborhood just go yeah. bonkers. Some of it's just, you know, you don't even want to take Henry to it because it's just like so over the top. And, yeah. you know, a lot of what we're seeing are like inflatable pumpkins and stuff like that. So we'll take him to those those places uh, if the weather holds up. But there's one house that's near us that's just got like a whole graveyard set up. And I'm just like, yeah. a waste of money. <laughs> yeah, I've gone, I've gone to my neighbors who have that. And I've literally been like, where do you keep all this? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, yeah, we can't really park our car in our garage. <laughs> that's, cr- yeah, that's what this, these, all some right. of these houses do. I mean, I, we you do you buy this one house. Um, Rachel and I were on a walk a couple of weeks ago and one of these houses had to have a couple thousand dollars of inflatables. Yeah. And the door opens, the front door opens, and all the inflatables weren't inflated because it was daytime. It was morning. And just so it's just like an inflatable graveyard. And this door opens, and this lady's got to be in like her late 60s, early 70s. And the door opens, all you, and all you hear is, because <laughs> they had some type of sensor on the door. So I naturally looked, and it was like the sweetest looking older lady that you'd see. And I'm like, yeah, the why the graveyard out here? What's going on? Like, I don't know. It just didn't seem to fit. Like you would think like a young, I don't know, 35 year old dude would be doing that, you know, putting all that stuff together. Maybe they did. I don't know. Maybe they got a son (laughs) in there. They did all that, but yeah. So we'll try to keep, uh, there's one street near us where we went down one year and it was like crazy adults are, they're like, you guys want shots? And we're like, we don't. We're just gonna yeah. mosey on to another street. <laughs> so some of the streets get a little crazy. So, yeah. alrighty. Well, thank you so much uh, for watching and or listening to the atrium. If you would like to submit a question to the atrium, you can email podcast at hopechristianchurch.com or you can text your question to four four zero hope two two two. Pastor Chad, thanks for being here. Mark, Pastor Mark, thanks for being here. Hopefully we'll be healthy and be back next week with more riveting talk. (laughs) (laughs) Do we name this podcast yet? No. Focus on the fingers. Focus on the fingers. (laughs) Sell the GameCube. (laughs) Sell the GameCube. (laughs) Maybe that's it. Inflatable graveyard. (laughs) All inflatable graveyard. Money for checkers. Money for checkers. (laughs) Money for checkers might be a good one. All right. right. Thanks for watching and listening. Bye-bye.